Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I don't want to say this as a rule because sometimes no. it can be amazing, but happy hour, oyster happy hour, tread carefully with oyster happy hour because it can be a way not to get rid of quote unquote bad oysters, but it's a way to get rid of small oysters, ugly oysters. You know, it, it's not always the best. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. It's so great having my buddy Nils Bernstein drop by the studio. Nils is a man of many skills, and we talk about his great new book, The Joy of Oysters, a complete guide to sourcing, shucking, grilling, broiling, and frying. Nils is the food editor for Wine Enthusiast magazine and has written and developed recipes for places like Bon Appetit, Epicurious, GQ, and The New York Times. But I know Nils best as a former music publicist, working with bands like Interpol, Stephen Malkmus, and Nirvana, while holding key positions at Sub Pop and Matador Records. We talk about his musical past, as well as his deep love of the oyster. I so enjoyed catching up with Nils, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Nils Bernstein, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Oh, man. I, I feel like we I talk about my past a bit on the show, and people may know I'm from Michigan. I went to school in Wisconsin. I've known you longer than any guest on this show except for my mom. <laughs> That's amazing. I think I met you when you were in college. We did. We met when I was in college when I was 19. Amazing. I love it. So we have to start with your music career, and yeah. we'll get into your book, because The Joy of Oysters is definitely... Definitely a highlight of the spring. I love your book so much. Thank you so much. It's like the, I was trying to think of like a musical comparison <laughs> or something. It's the, oh, you know, let's, we'll get, let's, we'll get yeah. to that in the, in the conversation. Okay. So I'm at the Badger Herald. I'm one of the editors. I started editing there and I'm calling using a landline and I'm calling this guy Nils in New York who worked at Matador. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Hey Nils, can you get me into shows? And you're like yeah. the coolest guy. You used to work in music. You you worked at Sub Pop. You worked at Matador. You consulted on many. Yeah, I'm deep in the indie rock world. I know, but let me ask you, like, before food, what was your interest? Like, what 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 drew you to music? And is there a comparison of the two? Well, I think I was I was into music from being a really young kid. I started going to shows and being involved in music when I was like 12 or 13. So. There was kind of no question that I would somehow try to integrate that into my work life. And luckily, growing up in Seattle, that was somewhere that it became a city that could support a music industry that I could be a part of. Yeah. So that was uh, beneficial, right? But so during that time, I'm, my my side interest is also food and mm-hmm. wine and, you know, food culture and whatnot, um, which never really seemed like something that would ever become any sort of career. You know, music seemed like for a young person, that's yeah. what, you know, I want to dive into that <laughs> full time. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, over time, my my interests remain the same between music and food, but I think maybe the lifestyle around it as a career as I got older made more sense in yeah. food and wine than it did in in music. In music. Uh, so back to the Matador, we'll, we'll go back to Sub Pop because sure. Sub Pop, you worked with Nirvana. You were Nirvana's yeah. first publicist there. You were in the room when Smells Like Teen Spirit was played for the first time. I was, That's yeah. a great reference point. So what was that like, dude? Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> 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 I liked it very much. Um, no, it was interesting because, you know, you'd kind of see – you know, you'd see a lot of bands all the time, and, yeah. you know, kind of pay attention, but kind of just be drinking and talking to people and walking around. Yeah. And so this was between albums. So they had started to play some of the songs that would show up on Nevermind, but, you know, they were, it was pre-internet. There was no way to hear yeah. anything. So they introduced the song and everyone's kind of just chatting and doing what you do at a show and then kind of like partway through the first verse, like barely into it, everyone kind of got really quiet. And I turned around, I was standing next to Kurt Block from a band called The Fastbacks, and we looked at each other like, mm. what the hell? <laughs> like, this is... the, fir- the From the first verse. Serious. Yeah, yeah, you know? serious. Because, yeah. you know, we loved all of our local bands, but you don't really think they're going to write, like, Stairway to Heaven. You no. know, they're just, you're having fun. What part of the song grabbed you the most? I mean, the lyrics of the first line, of the first lines are big, but... What, like, I mean, the opening guitar? Yeah, you couldn't really hear the lyrics, you know? It was like, yeah, it's yeah. now there's a recording of it and it sounds like garbage. And I'm amazed yeah. that we could see through <sighs> the haze and see the song yeah. for what it was. But it was really the, the it, when it goes from that quiet bridge into that really explosive yeah. chorus, it was really the chorus. The chorus is yeah. obviously Phil Stadium. Yeah, and it just felt day. serious, you know? It felt like it was very, like, you remembered the song after it was done, which is never the case when you're just seeing a local band paying half attention. Never the case. You know, never yeah. the case. You're never really humming anything out of the, especially a small club. Yeah, not okay. at all. Now, uh, when, the, when the boys and you are in the van, are you talking about food at all? <laughs> like, are you, are, is this food yeah. ever come up? I mean. Yeah, the thing is, what's been my experience is that the bands are a little less interested in food than the label people. Yeah. So we would kind of use like, well, you know, we could expense this meal and we're here for this reason. And we, so we'd always try to like, you know, get the bands to agree to go to restaurants that we wanted to go to in different (laughs) cities or in Seattle, um, which they, you know, usually didn't really care one way or the other, but it was in the, you know, the wild nineties days when, Record labels still had expense accounts. Well, especially in Seattle at that time. Yeah. That was like a real, great. people were flying in. To wine and dine. Yes. Us, like the label people. Of course. So, so we could pick and choose where we wanted to go. And if we were on tour, that was being, you know, that was part of the expense. And so, you know, I find that I've really used my time in the music industry to to go to restaurants and really experience like the world's dining culture. I've ended up dragging along bands that don't really care one way or the other, but you told me it's the been book, great for me. You told me the guys in in, in uh, Interpol are are pretty big into food. Uh-huh. Like that that they band are, in particular, yeah. Malcolmus, is he into food? Mm, you no. know, he likes a good vibe. Yeah, at a restaurant, he's more but he's not necessarily guy. into the food. Yeah, yeah, but the uh, guys in Interpol, Interpol, Daniel from Interpol yeah. is deeply into food. That's right. Uh, the real food band is Yola Tango. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, say of course because they like have lived in New York and they've seen the better things. And then we would, but you know, with bands like that, we would say, 
you know, oh, I think we have a meeting we need to have. Perhaps it's a dinner meeting. You know, you try to find an excuse yeah. to be able to go somewhere great. And, Do you have any memorable meals in New York that you just balled out? Like absolute, like just like like epic, epic ball out. It's outs? hard because you don't want to be too obnoxious. You know, it's like we're working in the indie world, yeah. so we don't want to be too obnoxious. This is in the past, but definitely, you know, there were some blowouts at. Uh, if you remember this place, Chantrell in oh, Tribeca. Yeah. That was a really big one. David Walter, amazing big restaurant. Time. Cheese cart, you know, in the late 90s, that was, you know, it didn't get more charming and beautiful. And and it was a great way to seduce a band you're yeah. trying to sign, right? Yeah, because the food was new American and which was new at the time. Totally. And like, you're like looking yeah. at things that are actually structurally similar, like a band from Missouri would be into it. But oh, it's yeah. like but the wines and the cart and the beautiful room. And it gives you something to talk about. Yeah. You know, it's a really point of conversation that goes beyond like, yeah, your demo sounded really good to us. You know, <laughs> you've had all these rudimentary conversations. So you're trying to find these other avenues of connection. Yeah. And um, so that was good. A lot of times somebody would want to just go to Nobu or go to somewhere that they heard was, you know, fancy. And we're like, I have somewhere that might be more interesting. Yeah. Whether you're into food or not, at least... There's more avenues of conversation. Did you ever think you signed a band because of the meal? Was there ever like a meal where you just closed the deal because the meal was... was? I can't think of an example, yeah. although I believe that was the case. But I also believe there it must also be the case that our single-mindedness on food and wine might have turned off a lot of bands who wanted to maybe... Hmm. Who felt that we were maybe a little culturally disconnected from them or... Yeah. You know, that they might not have been into the fact that we just wanted to luxuriate in, you yeah. know. Well, especially like younger bands. Yeah. And like the first time in New York and you don't need like the label guy like telling you them. Telling yeah. You about, like they just, want, they just want pizza. Fuck yeah. And we're dragging them to, you know, these crazy places. Yeah. So, and also there were things, you know, remember sometimes the bands aren't the healthiest people and whatnot. And I've had bands, you know, completely pass out at the dinner table, mm. go to the bathroom and never come back. Which bands? Things like that. Can't say. Okay, right. I had to ask. I had to, had to, had to get you. <laughs> we'll do that off mic. But, but Nils, I just want to then transition to when you went pro. Like, I remember vividly there was a time when you were still, like, consulting and doing PR on the side, mm -hmm. maybe for an agency, and you still may do that. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. But then I just remember you started getting, like, all these great – and these, like, bylines. Like, you were around. It was yeah. Dope, especially in wine, like, in wine writing particularly. I think it's just where my interests went. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, you you go when you're – you know, when I was 20, there's nothing better than to be hanging out with, you know, other 20-year-old music freaks and staying out late and going to concerts every night and whatever. At, you know, 40, 50, I'd – yeah. I less want to do that. I was the same way. I mean, I wrote about music in the early part of my career, worked to MTV and all that shit. And totally. Like, I was yeah. like in the scene and loved it. But ultimately what unlocked it for me was um, interviewing chefs and realizing that the narrative uh, was much more interesting and it was more uh, consequential and more right. there's more universality to it than bands who ugh, like are so hard to interview sometimes. But there must have been similarities also. Like how did you find – that transition, like to you, what was the difference between writing about music versus writing about food? I felt I, I'm not a musician, so I did not come with that very ingrained idea of of like uh, progressions, chords, even songwriting. Mm -hmm. um, I felt 
a little bit in the dark there. I know there's some beautiful, amazing food uh, music journalists who, who play, can't play anything. But I just felt like with food, when I transitioned to that, I could like think about the way I traveled as a kid for food and like to also like it was definitely a lower barrier of entry into food writing. Do you agree with this? I I think so. I think it's I think other people might disagree and think that it's an easy, you know, it's like I like music and I'm able to talk about music. So it's easy to get sure. into music writing with food. I think there's a, people have a real difficulty or an intimidation factor about writing about it. But if you have comfort writing about it and like you're saying, you felt less intimidated writing about food than music, yeah. then it's something that's easier to to broach. One One thing that I thought was a little unusual about writing about food is when you write about music, people can listen to the music. They can right. buy the record and they're sharing that experience. With food, somebody theoretically can make the dish or go to the same restaurant, but the experience is going to be different. Yeah. So you're you're kind of – it's more like reviewing a concert. Like it's already happened, you know. I went to this restaurant and this is what happened. Yeah. So you have to somehow make it vivid and relevant for somebody in the present, which can be hard to do if they can't – they don't have the food in front yep. of them the way they do a record. It's a good point, Niels. And I think the co- contextualization of the of the dish for, like, a greater audience is, like, a huge goal when you're editing. Yeah. Like, agree with you. Like, if you go to Oaxaca and you write about uh, your experience in Oaxaca, it's all in the past tense. Yeah. But then, or even, yeah, cooking a meal from, like, northern Thailand and out of a cookbook. Like, yeah, that's going to be past tense, too, because you're reflecting on the meal. So, yeah, the big challenge is how do we make it active? Yeah. How do you make the – because with with music writing, yeah, you can, like, go to Spotify and, like, totally have your own opinion. Right, right. You know? And a great, you know, a great cookbook or great food writing, people say they can read it like like a novel. You know, they yeah. can – without any intention of cooking the food or going to the place, they still enjoy reading it. But that's a real talent to get to that place where someone's happy to read it without tasting it. Well, absolutely. And I think, I mean, your books and The Joy of Oysters is one of them, but I think it, there's real narrative there. There's like really fun sidebars. And I think it's all about packaging and understanding yeah. <laughs> how to keep, how to make it read like a book and not like a textbook. Yeah, I hope so. It's, 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 it's almost easier to write like a textbook. So it's like, but oysters can become, it can be such a technical topic and it shouldn't be, it should be fun. There shouldn't be a lot of barriers to entry. I, I'll get into oysters. I just have a few more questions. Was oh, yeah, there an please. assignment that you felt like this, I've gone pro, that you like a story that you published or you mm. wrote um, either for a larger publication or even a smaller one that you're like, man, I am definitely a food writer. Man, I wish. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I I had, I was always working at record labels, but I was also writing about music on the side. And so I think yeah. I had a lot of those like, oh my God, I'm in Interview Magazine or I'm in, you know, Rolling Stone or, you know, those yeah. were more of the kind of revelatory things from music writing. Um, but I did start writing a lot about Mexico because I started spending a lot of time in Mexico City starting in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s. And so being able to write things for Bon Appetit mm-hmm. and um, about Mexico City at a time when there was very little attention on it was really rewarding and satisfying. Man, you and I, we've traveled together. It's we been have, like yeah. one, we were in Mexico, we were in... Um, Copenhagen. We were in Copenhagen as well, but in Mexico, we went to Guanajuato, yep. went to the Mummy Museum. That's right. Holy shit. And we went to, we took the little road trip and stopped in that town, Dolores Hidalgo, yeah. known for ice cream, where I was like shrimp ice cream. Yeah, and, and saw some like tough that. characters and at the saloon. That's Remember right, where the, where the urinal is, is in... At the bar, you just 
stand up at the bar and yeah you stand up at the bar the and the guys have got like a bar. couple guns definitely <laughs> on their on their hip yeah but that mummy museum and Guanajuato was oh cool. my god yeah you were a little disturbingly into that mummy museum yeah <laughs> I've told so many friends about it it's really really fascinating it's really gruesome love, but amazing it's amazing and then yeah in Copenhagen we were there for mad and I think you and I shared a meal that both of us reflect on as one of our favorite meals mm-hmm. for sure geranium oh yeah, it was incredible. And we got a, a kitchen tour and I think we were there for five hours yeah. or something. It was really magical. And I think the one part of that meal uh, that really stuck with me and I think you as well is the N.A. pairing. Yeah, it was the first time I'd seen really serious where, where they took the same, if not more care with the non-alcoholic pairing than they did yep. the cocktail or wine pairing. And it was years before. I mean, at this point, it was seven years ago or something. Yeah, seven years ago. Um, you know, way before other people were doing it. And it was, to me, a real benchmark of that. Well, they were cooking a lot of it. I mean, remember a sea buckhorn um, juice that was cooked and then it was, you know, chilled. And it's the yellowness of the bright yellow and just everything <laughs> yeah. about it was amazing. Yeah, it really was. Um, okay, let's talk oysters. Uh, a million questions. Uh, first off, just in general – you know what? You, there's a lot of single topics you can do. Like you're, you know, a lot yep. of. So yep. why, why, why oysters? I think you know I grew up in Seattle, um, so oysters are kind of just in my blood. You know, when I was I'm older, so when I was growing up, mm-hmm. there was still wild oysters. You could go when we would go clamming, which were yeah, clams like the razor clams in the Pacific Northwest can be quite hard to dig for. They're fast and they're sharp, and but the oysters are just sitting there on rocks. So we were like. You can just grab these as a kid, and eat you them. just go down and get them. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. You know, it was like it's free food. It just seemed yeah. magic. Um, and I noticed that like it's, you know, oysters have this real important presence in in history and art and society and economics. And and there's a handful of books on them, but not as many as you might think. And a lot of the books on them talk about they really focus on oyster farms and the really like where oysters are right now in the in the U.S. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there didn't seem to be a real general interest kind of book like this one, which is kind of recipes, but also coffee table book. Yeah. Just fun information where you can kind of open to any page and yeah. find something of interest, which it just seemed like for if someone's just going to have, you know, someone who's casually or deeply interested in oyster and wants kind of a one-stop oyster shop, you know, I mean, you have a presidential history with oysters. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's really fun, like the yeah. editing. It's really crisp. Like, is there a favorite presidential <laughs> anecdote? It's kind of, well, it's mostly the ones in like the 1800s had at their inaugural balls would have just obscene amounts of oysters. Like, you know, hmm. 10,000, 20,000 oysters being served at their, you know, at their ball. And you're just imagining like, well, you're imagining who's shucking them, but hmm. um, also just how they're being served, how they're being, and there would be, you know, these presidential menus with like oysters on the half shell and then oyster bisque and then an oyster fricassee. And then, you know, they're just consuming these obscene quantities of oysters. And it's so exciting to just look at the menus. Yeah, just see. look at how many purposes the oysters have been yeah. given. Now, you write about a reductive conversation or conversations that mm. are reductive mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to oyster uh, dialogue. What, what are you talking about here? Yeah, I think people get a little wrapped up in the conversation around oysters. They want to talk about location and farming and the details of certain regions and whatever, and they kind of lose the 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 fun of it and the approachability of it, which is uh, oysters do 
express where they come from in a really specific way. But at the same time, you don't necessarily talk in a really detailed, geeky way about scallops and shrimp and clams and whatnot. You just you buy them, you yeah. enjoy them, you cook them or you don't. You might you know where them. the scalp is from. You might yeah. have a tag on there. Yeah, if maybe you not. choose to go down that road. But I think a lot of people have a lot of apprehension about um, uh, eating oysters at home, cooking them. Yeah. They're not sure how to order them at restaurants, things like that. And so it was it was more like you don't need to talk about oysters in a in a complicated way. Yeah. You know, you get a list at a restaurant and it has, you know, here's all of our East Coast oysters and here's all of our West Coast oysters. And you don't know the names of the farms and no. and and you're not being told exactly how each one is different. And you don't know till you taste it. Exactly. And and also they could have stored them incorrectly. There could have been a lot of reasons where the farm is out oh, of the equation. And, absolutely. You know, or shucked yeah. incorrectly. Lots of reasons. I mean, yeah. page 144, the headline is aphrodisiac question mark. Ah, uh, yeah. First, first the bad news. <laughs> so what, what's, in it? What's, the, well, what's the line on that? I mean, I guess it's like... Um, you know, they've, they have actually done quite a bit of scientific research about whether or not oysters are aphrodisiacs. And, you know, the general answer is no in terms of whether, yeah. you know, it's going to work in the short term yeah. the way a pill might. But there are, if you're deficient in certain vitamins or minerals that might contribute to blood flow, then eating oysters might help that in the short yeah. or long term. I love the spin on it, Nils. Without getting into too many of the weeds, and it's a hard question, but like you talk about how an oyster grows. Uh-huh. What's generally, how does that happen? Because I, I think right. it, it's something that we assume is like maybe overnight like sea, like like other right. seafood. I think the way to think of it is is more like plants than animals. And even some of the lingo in the oyster industry is more akin to farming language than it is animals. So you buy seeds, you plant them, yeah. et cetera. So, you know, you buy these microscopic oysters, or if you're a farm that also has its own hatchery, in the first week or two of their life, they grow quite quickly and find somewhere to attach. And once they attach to a substrate, uh, which is what they need before they continue mm -hmm. the rest of their growth. Like a bed? They don't move. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it can be another oyster shell. Historically, that's what oyster reefs are, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're oysters attached. The best substrate for an oyster is another oyster. Oh, I see, yeah. And so they, you see a lot of like early oyster knives, which one side of them is this blunt iron thing, which was used to break apart mm -hmm. the oysters because you'd get them in clumps, not individually. Yeah. So you just shatter the shell and pull it off. Yeah, and you just you just want to break them up because yep. they're all growing on each other. Yep, 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 yep. Um, and so they they attach to rocks, they attach to things, and they can also attach to like a grain of sand, and then the oyster eventually grows so much bigger than the grain of sand so the substrate isn't visible, so it looks like an individual oyster. But but the way they grow, back to your question, is is they, you know, very, very, very early in their life, within the first two weeks, they attach to a substrate, and that's where they are forever. Forever. How long do they take to grow? It really varies, and I do find that people, one of my pet peeves is I think people harvest them a bit early mm. because people like smaller oysters. We They're, think smaller is like mm -hmm. sweeter. I mean, crisper, crisp. sweeter. Yeah. And I find they're just smaller. Like, I need, you know, you need 
three times as many to get full. So yeah, I mean, to me, I'm just being cheated out of oyster meat. I agree. Like down at like New Orleans, Felix, like those mm-hmm. are the big boys coming out of the Gulf yeah. that are grilled down there. I don't know if you want to get into like Gulf versus East Coast of America. I, I will in a moment. Yeah. I can do that. Um, I feel like, I mean. I'm very pro. So okay, yeah. So I am pro every oyster region. See, I so. feel that's exactly why this book. I love this book. There isn't some like strange like rule, and we can get into the R Definitely rule. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, let's first get into the R rule. Okay. So there, there's usually a, a minimum size that oysters have to grow to before they're harvestable. But people really just, you know, they take a few years to grow. So they, people want to harvest them as soon as possible. Yeah. And get them to market. Whereas I you know, could maybe see them through another season and have them bulk up a little bit. But, um, but yeah, the R rule is really just based on, I mean, this idea that they, you know, the life cycle of a, of an oyster is that they, you know, they bulk up in the winter and develop glycogen and become very fat and sweet. And so that's the perception. My perception is colder waters. And like, there's like, that's, but that's wrong, clearly. Yeah. Because you can, you know, they can, there's a, there's a, a a range of water temperature and salinity that they'll grow in, but it's not that it's just that 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 life cycle, that time of year is when they're kind of um, uh, their 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 body is is storing glycogen and turning into, you know, it's becoming ready for reproduction. Yes. And so at the time of reproduction, all of that, their body turns into gonad, basically, mm-hmm. whether it's a male or a female. Mm-hmm. Most of that, let's call it meat, yeah. turns into reproductive material. Right. And when they, let's say, ejaculate, shall we? Yeah. Um, then they become quite scrawny because most of their body is that material. Uh, you know, so there's a period where they become, uh, they don't have that sweet glycogen mm-hmm. meat and instead... It's reproductive material. Then they become shriveled. So generally there's a period where they just don't feel or taste very good. And then they become really shriveled and drawn out. Okay. But there's ways to that oyster farmers can manage that process, can affect when and how that uh, annual life cycle takes place and, you know, mitigate that rigidity that this happens in this month and this happens in this month and whatnot. And also some of the R rule had to do with the health of the water during warmer months. Um, the R rule being that their the oysters should only be eaten in, in months with R in them. Right. So, I, I was going to restate that, but yeah. it's, it's clear it's, if you're this far so, in this podcast, you know you love oysters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's, there's so much, you know, the virtually any commercially available oyster is farmed and so oyster farms are there's there's testing there's there's rules they're they're really managing their stocks and their their water waterways yeah. really well so it's it's very 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 uncommon that there's you're going to get some sort of you know red tide poisoning or whatever yeah. because all of that's being dealt with and the recent there's been a couple recent oyster poisonings and they've all been from imported oysters that have been poorly stored, like frozen or um, that have been not stored at temperature. They have nothing to do with how they were farmed and harvested. The other thing, too, is it's really hard to eat a bad oyster, right? That's like a myth that you're going to like get sick from like – because like it's very uncommon and also 
it'd be a horrible smell. Yeah, it's really uncommon. And when it happens again, it's from like some oyster product that has gotten to you in a bad way. If you're just like eating oysters at a reliable place or at a farm or whatever, you know, they, they know they're not serving you. You know, like one bad oyster will ruin the whole you, know. you can smell it from a mile away. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, you know, you something dies in your garage. It's like that's the kind of smell versus yeah. that like no smell. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm sick from the oysters. That yeah, exactly. And you know sick it, from the champagne, yo. You know, you're shucking it and it's being shucked or yeah. being shucked for you or whatever. And so, you know, in that moment, you know, you're generally uh, getting handed something that you know, has been vetted, so to speak. I want to ask you about oysters around the world. One thing I love uh-huh. about your book is that you're you're not just focusing on the European-American gaze. I mean, you've gone around the world with some of the recipes. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You write about it in many different places, how oysters are prized throughout the world. And I'd love for your take on maybe a culture uh, that maybe we less, we, we less recognize in food yeah. media who love oysters. I think there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of in the in the U.S. There's really five oyster varieties, but there's really two. There's the Pacific oysters and the Atlantic oysters. Yeah. There's the Kumamoto's, or a different variety. The Olympias, which are you know very mm-hmm. a bit rare now, and the uh, the European flats, which they don't farm very much in the U.S. But around the world, there's a lot of other oyster varieties, and they're all quite similar. Sometimes there's ones that people thought were Pacific oysters that are actually, Mm -hmm. they've decided to give them a different name because there's something, you know, genotypically or whatever that they figured out is a little bit different. But they're all, you know, they're all a little similar. Um, But there, there is a lot. And so the oysters that you find commonly in other countries might not be the same species as we have here. So I would say, I mean, I think Korea is a big oyster consuming country as you could speak to. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You'll see with Bosom, of course, with, with boiled pork, there's always a a dozen oysters. And they use it to me, there's a real beauty in Korean consumption of oysters because it's very lusty, you know, they're just like, they, they know that they, they embrace the stronger flavors and they know that they can really enhance something. They can they can both play a background role or a prominent role. It's cool because like Huey, like just raw fish there, mm-hmm. like is not like Japanese sashimi where it's you know it's these are fish pulled out of the tank, killed right away. Right, abalone served right out of the tank, so it's pretty raw and rigor mortis and chewy. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of that lustiness that I love that word. It's like very in your face at times. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's they appreciate the variety of flavors, yeah. often really strong flavors that an oyster can can. Yep tolerate, you know. I think Australia is a really great country for oysters. They have the Sydney rock oyster. Um, New Zealand has a rock oyster as well that now they distinguish between the two. They used to kind of lump them both under the same. Yeah. Um, and Australians, it's a it's a delicious oyster. It has a, it's meaty, it's a little metallic, it has a really neat texture and flavor. But it's more just, I mean, I think Australians consume everything with a lot of gusto. Yeah. But you know, if you're in Australia watching yeah. in an oyster growing region, watching them eat oysters, it's like, oh, my God, that guy just ate four dozen oysters. Yeah, like, so there's a know, real consumption. Really, an yeah, yeah, they really love them. They really put them center stage and really appreciate them. Um, I think all over Asia and Southeast Asia, there's a lot of oysters and appreciation for the variety of oysters. Yeah. And also there's a lot of history in understanding how to maintain oyster beds with not over harvesting making sure that you leave enough for the next, you know, whereas in the, you know, U.S. and most of the world, they're, you know, it's just pretty much gone and overfished and it's all farming. 
Now, I have to ask you, I I grew up eating oysters um, on the west coast of Florida, actually. And so the way that our family ate oysters was with a, on a saltine, with a dollop of either Frank's Red Hot or Tabasco. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that was the way I grew up. Now, I did that once with a friend and they were like horrified. (laughs) Yeah. So my question for you, Niels, is do you have a perfect way to enjoy an oyster? I think... You know, with Gulf oysters, historically, they tended to have sometimes kind of a muddy or strong flavor. Yep. But that's those were the wild oysters. Now you're talking about most of the Gulf oysters and southern U.S. oysters are farmed. And so they can – they know exactly what the, yeah. what the water is like and they can play into that flavor or play against it or do whatever they want. But it's not – you're not harvesting these very old, giant, wild oysters and kind of – where it's a crapshoot as to what the texture and flavor is going to be. And that dollop of hot sauce and the saltine really kind of helps balance that out. Um, I would probably say my favorite is either a little lemon juice or just fresh ground black pepper. Nice. Never have tried that. Never have tried pepper. I think there's a – people think about oysters – whether it's wine pairing or a mignonette or whatever, is acidity, 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 yeah. acidity. And I don't think that's always – I think sometimes acidity, just like sugar, can kind of obscure the flavor. So pepper is a really interesting way that it, it kind of brings out the flavor of the oyster without covering it up. Without crushing it with like mignonette, which you get at like Balthazar, which yeah. just kind of is sad, you know. But sometimes sweetness can bring out the flavor of an oyster just as well. You have its briny, a little sweetness balances it out the same way a bit of acidity does. And for example, uh, the chef Ignacio Matos at his place, Cafe Altro Paradiso, does a white balsamic with oysters that's really brilliant because it it's kind of both, right? It's mm-hmm. you know a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of acidity, but not too much in either direction. And it really, really brings out the flavor of oysters in a great way. Speaking of restaurants, I think a big question I always have is how do you order oysters at a restaurant? Is there – I know there's like going to be a lot of song and dance you sigh. It's very taking your side because I think there's like lots of upselling and obviously there's a lot of margin that comes in with with an oyster service. How do you do it? You don't really know. You know, when you go to a place, they tell you – I just even just yesterday they said – Oh, well, let me tell you, our East Coast oysters are from, you know, our Jimmy Jam sweets from, you know, uh, Norwich, Connecticut. And our West Coast oysters are, you know, Matt Rodbard delights from <laughs> Canal, Washington. And, yes. You know, it's it's like, okay, that, that does me no good. I have no idea what, you know, and which one do you like better? Oh, they're very different oh. uh, and they're great. They're both terrific. So, you know, and realistically, you're not going to ask how they're stored. You're not going to ask to see the harvest tag from the bag. You're not going to, you know. Sir, Garcon, can you please bring out the tags? So it's really hard. And what I tell people, you know, it's not ideal, but, and it's also not always available this way, but order the smallest quantity you can first. Yeah. Just say, hey, I'd love to, you know, we love oysters. We want to order a bunch, but we're just going to get three for now. And then and see how we'll it order goes. more later. Love that. Now, are there any super red flags when ordering oysters at a restaurant? Maybe that uh, it's written on a menu or, or behavior from the staff? Well, I don't want to say this as a rule because sometimes no. it can be amazing. But happy hour, oyster happy hour, you yeah. got to tread carefully with oyster happy hour because it can be a way not to get rid of quote unquote bad oysters, but it's a way to get rid of uh, small oysters, ugly oysters, 
maybe the previous batch of oysters, you know, it, it, it's not always the, uh, the best, yeah, the best uh, way you're not getting the best product at happy hour. But again, like you're not likely going to have sickness caused by a happy hour. No, 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 not at all. No. So you just might not be having the optimal, but if they're only a dollar, which it leads to my next question. You can order twice as much. You can order twice as much and you can like maybe do some saltine in Tabasco, but what should like, what is a fair price? I mean, I know like there's a lot of factors, like what should we be paying for oysters? Well, you know, I never want to say what a restaurant should charge because there's a million other factors. Um, you know, I think I would just say that whatever they're charging, what they should be giving you just as is the case with their salads and steaks and anything else is the best product possible. So they should really pay attention. And if they know that the oysters are not at their best for whatever reason, then they should either lower the price or not sell them. They should be as uh, confident and demanding of the quality as they are anything else on their menu. I find that people often just think it's enough that they're selling fresh oysters, but they really should be at their best yeah. if they're priced at full price. Is it tough to train staff at a restaurant to like shock and have them serve well? I mean, it seems I like- I think so. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, there's usually- not multiple people shucking necessarily. No. I mean, really, as long as shucking, you're you're all right as long as you're not spilling liquid and mm-hmm. having chips of the shell. Yeah, in it, you know, you're you're probably okay. The quality of the oyster is more important than a beautiful shock versus yeah. a little bit of a rough one. Yeah, you don't yeah. want the chips in there. Um, but I think it's you know it's hard to train a staff in you know if you're trying to train servers and how to explain exactly what they're like and why and how they're stored and you know it's just. It's a lot to ask. It's tough. Um, and also with the hot kitchen, there's like temperature control. There's always issues. Yeah, you want to definitely shuck them, you know, close to order. Yeah. Which isn't always uh, ideal. You know, yeah. you have, you can't, you know, they need to be at a certain temperature. And yeah. so you don't want to leave them in hot or icy yeah, you don't want temperatures frozen. for too long. It's so really it's, hard. You know, and that's that's why, you know, often the price at a restaurant is very justified besides all the other reasons that a restaurant needs to price things the way they do. Oysters do take a lot of um, uh, attention, but they should be shucked and served properly. They should be in really great condition and mm. all the rest. Also leads to my question about oysters at home. I feel like your book is a cookbook as much as it is as a history. For sure, yeah. And there's a lot of great recipes and there's ways to cook oysters and there's ways with pasta and there's ways with East Asia in mind. But Mm -hmm. I want to just know, like, I've never done it. And I feel like I'm pretty ambitious in the kitchen. Just something I don't think about. Why should we rethink oysters at home? Well, that's something I really want the book to, to make people think about and encourage people to really buy them and serve them and cook them at home. I think a big reason is what we were just talking about with restaurant quality. You don't really know until you get it. Yeah. You're paying 3 $4 for an oyster that may not be the best. At least if you're buying them, it's much cheaper to buy them, whether you're buying them at a fish market or yeah. direct from a farm or whatever it is. And you know before you eat or serve them exactly what the quality is. There's no mystery to it. Um, another thing is you can shuck or you can from a lot of good bigger oyster farms you can buy pre-shucked that are literally shucked into a jar there's no preservatives or anything um and or you can just shuck ahead of time you strain the oyster liquor and then you have this amazing ingredient just ready to go yeah cooks fast 
it's incredibly delicious and it's it's actually relatively low labor once everything is shucked. What do you like to do then? I mean, you have a lot of recipes, but is there like a go-to that you feel? I mean, I like omelets personally. That's like my guy. Yeah, yeah. If you see so you're a good cook, so <laughs> oysters and eggs right. can be tricky because you yeah. kind of burn the eggs before the oysters I cook tried. or vice it's, versa. I've done that, yeah. But if you're, you know, paying attention, it can be an incredible combination egg and oyster. Um two ways I'd say that I end up eating oysters a lot at home is one way is steamed, just uh oysters on the half shell in a bamboo steamer with a little bit of anything, ginger and ponzu yeah. or something just drizzled. You just cover them, steam them. Five, ten minutes later, they're hard to overcook. Um, they look beautiful. They're really gentle. They have a really pure oyster flavor. I really like doing that. You don't have to turn the oven on. So you know. smart. And I like deep frying. I'm, I'm in general lately. I'm really into deep frying for one. But um, there's something really satisfying once you have again the oysters shucked and your sauces made or whatever. Oh my! That you're just dredging. You're getting it in the oil, oh. and a couple minutes later, you know you have a platter of fried oysters that you did yourself. There's an incredible sense of yeah. accomplishment in that, and it's not really that hard. It sounds, you know? especially if you get them shucked for you, it sounds like it actually wouldn't be that hard. Oh, it's nothing. Talk yeah. about like an absolute like baller ass move for a dinner party. I, it's a baller ass move. Yeah, for sure. yeah, totally. And also, you you know, if you are shucking yourself. You can shuck ahead of time. Yeah. If you're cooking oh, yeah. them, you know, it's not just shuck in the morning and yeah. cook them at night. You yeah. know, it's 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 nice. It it feels, you know, it's like kneading bread or something. There's something satisfying about shucking oysters. Oh, definitely. And then you have the ingredient prepped, and it's quite an easy fried oysters. Can yeah, it's actually a couple. Be, it's a it's a couple. Uh, it's a dre- it's a wash and a dredge, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You you know you toss them in flour to yeah. get kind of yeah. some of the liquidness off, mm-hmm. and you know. And I mean, there's a million ways to fry oysters. You do panko, I guess. Many of them yeah. in the book. Yeah, right um, on. And you can also pan fry oysters. They're really, really oh, delicious. Oh, yeah, like a scallop. That sounds good. Um, and so you're still breading, dredging, maybe panko. Pan fried. Panko's good for pan fried. Yeah. Um, and then you're not even doing the pot of oil that gets people freaked out about deep frying. You're just pan frying like you would fry anything. Yeah. And you have these crispy, incredible, puffy crunchy, delicious oysters. They're so good fried. Now, let's transition to your uh, your wine writing. Uh, and okay, to close, yeah. I just want to know, like, you write extensively about wine. And is there is there a story that you've been working on or are about to publish that you're just super stoked about right now? I think something I'm really excited about in the wine world right now is Mexican wine. Yeah. Um, I think it's at a, it's kind of at a really important point right now where it's starting to get a lot of attention. A lot of it isn't very good, but a lot of it is really legitimately world-class and delicious. Mm-hmm. So is it focused on Baja? Uh, yeah. About 75% of uh, Mexican wine is from Baja. Yeah. Uh, they get this, even though it's, you know, in near Ensenada, they get a maritime influence, um, to the vineyards that brings the temperature down at night and gives it a good yeah. separation between the daytime and nighttime temperatures. Um, it can be really good for a variety of grapes. And it's just kind of interesting watching a region kind of start to come into its own. It's not been that long that they've been really focused on quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see what you know young people are experimenting with. There's no rules around wine production there. And so there's a lot of really exciting experiments and um, just a lot of interesting wine coming out of there. And in other parts of Mexico, uh, they're very high altitude vineyards to obviously mitigate 
the temperature. So a lot of the highest vineyards in the world are in central Mexico. They're up, you know, as high as 8,000 feet. Yeah. Um, which is insanely higher than almost anywhere else in the world. So it's interesting. It's just, you know, it's always fun to, it's like the, the indie rock guy in me, you know, it's like, what's the emerging (laughs) region? You're always always like, you're like, want to be ahead of the curve. You want to, you're trend spotting. And on that note, I want to ask you about uh, like a domestic region. Is there a part of America doing wine that you maybe are like a little, little more excited about than others? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like, well, it's a little bit like Mexico where it's, you know, there's a lot of wine, domestic wine regions outside of Washington, Oregon and, and, uh, California that are great, but you really have to filter through the mm-hmm. shit to get, oops, yeah, yeah uh, good. uh, it truly is shit too. Yeah. Yeah. You have to filter through it to get to the good stuff, but that doesn't mean there isn't some amazing stuff. I mean, I would say outside of the West coast, I'd be, I'm really interested in Virginia. Um, wow, cool. I've had some good stuff from, well, Finger Lakes, obviously, for Riesling, but also mm-hmm. some other things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michigan, I've tasted some good stuff from there. I've tasted a lot from Texas, most yeah. of it not good, but some of the best non-West Coast domestic wine I've tasted has been from Texas. So it's in there. Yeah. You know, you just have to really uh, find it. But I think it's it's something that's important to think about and promote because it's well, like oysters, it's a really important yep. U.S. industry historically. And some of the smaller wine regions are bringing back grapes, uh, wine grapes, also high, so-called hybrid grapes that aren't the Venus vinifera grape used for wine, mm-hmm. um, that are bringing back some of these grapes that have historically been used for wine. And they're bringing them back. And some of those wines are really amazing. And so I think it's it's nice to... It's a way to revisit the country's history from a different perspective. I love that. There's also just great value in America, too. There is, yeah. When you're talking about buying cases or if you have an event or, you know. For sure, yeah. And it's sparkling wine, too. And really, you know, talking about value, the way that value doesn't always uh, mean price. You know, you can have something cheap that's not a good value and something expensive that is a good value. That's what I meant. Yeah, Um, totally. It doesn't mean it's cheap, exactly. But I'd say there's some you know, some Oregon Chardonnays that are unbelievable values that rival the best white Burgundy that, mm-hmm. you know, you're buying it. They're they're not dirt cheap, but you're buying them at much more yeah. inexpensively than you might white Burgundy. There's some really serious uh, big reds from Washington that are absolutely amazing quality. There's some more experimental grapes in California and some of the expensive regions of California, Mm -hmm. but there are these grapes that don't command the same Mm -hmm. price and that don't cost the winemakers the same price that are also some really great values. That's really All over the U.S. there's good wine values. Uh, Who are you writing for right now? Um, Well, I'm the food editor for Wine Enthusiasts, so doing, you know, a lot of that's uh, food and wine pairing and and whatnot, and and doing a lot of um, uh, some cookbook work and hopefully doing more books. I love it. To, I, I, can't wait. This and, I can't wait to have you back talk about more books and, and talk about more band stuff. Is there one band right now that you're just like, uh, I, so ask, my, I know it's my dreaded question because I feel like one I'm, band, I'm kind of out of it, but one band. one band that I will say never lets me down. And I like them as much now as I did when they started is Spoon. Wow. They don't. They, yeah. Sorry. No comment. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's, that's a good, I mean, they're a good band, but yeah. 
Oh man, I'm I'm with them. All of their yeah. their their roller coaster career. I'm 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 here for all of yeah, it. Yeah, Girls Can Tell is still one of my top five albums ever. Yeah, I amazing. love that album. Yeah. Chicago at Night play it still often. There is no better or worse. There's just different. I agree. I like the new bully material. I like that band bully. I like from that Chicago. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Good band. I just heard them recently. I really like Good it. Good young band. Younger. Um let's close by I want to ask you if you could have a restaurant name a menu item after you. Mm. What would that be? That's a good question. I'd say maybe a fried oyster dish would be amazing. I like that. What do we need to call it, Nils? I would say, uh, oh, what would we call it? Yeah. I thought my 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 name is weird enough that I thought it would warrant the something that rhymes with Nils, you know, pills, chills, something. <laughs> like chills have to be a cold item. So, um or uh, that's interesting. I think of diner items, you know, you always think that things that are named after people are yeah. in diners. So I think of like an omelet or a club sandwich or something. Would be. All right. I like that. Well, Nils Bernstein, thank you so much for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. It was really fun. Eliza, three things. Let's do it. Let's, I'm ready. So... I think you should start. I want to. I want you to hear your first of three things. Yeah, I did just say I'm ready, so I think I set myself you up did. there. You did. You absolutely did. Okay, my first thing is not a new thing. It's just a favorite thing, which is the chicken sandwich at the Fly here in Brooklyn. Have you had it before? I haven't. Um, I was talking to Grossi Pelosi earlier today. We were recording an episode soon to air and taste, and he was talking about the Fly. Big yeah. up in it. I love the Fly. I think it's a great restaurant. It's a lot of seating. They have great drinks. It's just like a good place to stop by. But their chicken sandwich, I actually dream about. And I'm not a huge meat eater. So when I'm like yeah. fixating on a, a chicken sandwich, I feel like that really speaks for it. It's a very juicy sandwich. Awesome. It is like a eat it fast because the bread is going to disintegrate. I love it. So this is a chicken cutlet I'm imagining? No, it is. The fly does rotisserie chicken. Okay. So it's a rotisserie chicken sandwich. And the rotisserie chicken has been kind of pulled a little bit, shredded. It is incredibly juicy. There's mayo on it, um, maybe like a little bit of vegetables, but I always get the green beans and then kind of tuck them into the sandwich. Oh, you're a tucker. You you like putting like chips into, into sandwiches, like green beans into sandwiches, coleslaw. Yeah, I'm a zhuzher in general. Yeah. I feel like when I have <laughs> multiple components on my table, I'll have a bite as is, yeah. and then I'm just adding other things because maybe I'm going to unlock something that's even more amazing. Um, but I went on Friday and just devoured this sandwich and got really excited to be coming back as it gets hotter and I'm just wanting to be sati satiated. Yeah. Is that a word? Absolutely satiated. And yeah. what's the bread choice here? Uh, it's like a crusty roll. So it huh. doesn't get soft right away, but I do. It is the kind of thing that my friend wasn't eating hers right away, and I was like, you should get on that, you know? Yeah, you got to eat. That soggy uh, sandwich, like when the bottom uh, slice is soggy, you can't do that. It's good. You just, you eat it first, you know? Yeah, I love that. I got to check it out. Mm -hmm. What's your first thing? This was the week of Becky Shoe's Bad Waitress essay on Dirt. I feel like everyone, do you get a chance to read it yet? Uh, it's open. I started reading it. Yeah, it's long. Um, I just have to say uh, it's great, and I read it twice, and I really think Becca is doing something that Bourdain did when he jumped into the scene and others in that he she is um, kind of defining uh, something that we all know, the feeling of being in service, this feeling of being a wait, a wait staff particularly and really marinating on some of the, the big picture things that are happening in, in restaurant service. And I really don't want to spoil it. It's not really – I guess it's not really a spoiler essay kind of thing, but I think in general – 
uh, it's really cool to see someone with such a signature voice break out. Um, and I love Dirt, too. I love what they're doing. So I was very happy to see that. Is it the kind of thing like how Bourdain was kind of spilling secrets that people didn't know before? Or you already knew about it, but it's just the way it's being phrased is so fun. Great question. Um, both in a way, I think that talking about the way um, what she she works at, um, it's not Perkins or Waffle House. Um, I'm forgetting the chain, but she worked in a chain restaurant. And I, like working in a chain restaurant um, was kind of uh, an insight. Um, but I, I just think the way that she writes is it's quite funny. It's it's quite cathartic. And I know she's an editor and writes a lot of fiction. So there's she's got a long history of writing. I'm going to definitely check out some of her other um, articles or essays. This line really stuck with me. I suspect it's easier to teach a waitress to be a writer than an intellectual to be a waiter. I thought that was a great line. Yeah, I think um, it's a specific set of skills. I see that. I believe that. Yeah. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes and check out Dirt and check out Becca's work. I really enjoyed it. What's your next three things? My next thing, I don't think I've talked about shrubs as my three things before. (sighs) Have I? I don't. I mean, no. Well, I made a shrub this past Mm. week. It's shrub season. It's shrub season. Well, you can always make a shrub. Shrub is like essentially you're macerating fruit and then adding vinegar and letting it sit and then you strain it and then you have this very tangy sweet because you're there's the sugar with the fruit concoction um i made a shrub that was rhubarb and mint which is a recipe that al culleton did for bon appetit a couple years back and al's a really great beverage director and they have a newsletter that i really like called al's cocktail club that's giving drink history so i was just reading a newsletter and then i was reminded of this shrub recipe But I really loved having this rhubarb mint shrub in my fridge. I've been mixing it with seltzer. I think it would be very good with gin or mezcal added if you wanted to spike it. And then also I've been using it to macerate fruit to put on top of yogurt or ice cream. It's kind of, honestly, I think it would be really good in a salad dressing. It's just this like delicious, fruity, tangy thing. Mm. Well said, Eliza. I think shrubs are a way to get rid of fruit, basically, that's going bad. It's like some way, it's like preservation, but it's also creating a new astringent, vinegar of sorts or mild vinegar. Right, exactly. Uh, And I had written about shrubs for Eater a few years ago and interviewed Al about it. And they had told me about this history of shrubs as this all-American drink in some ways because uh, food preservation, right? You have the harvest coming to an end. You want to be able to have some kind of fruity sweetness later on in the year enter the shrub. Yeah, it's great. I've never made them. I actually have written about shrubs for punch uh, as well, but I've never actually made them. So... I'm a big fan. I think as somebody that doesn't, I don't drink a lot of soda. If I want to have like a little drink in the summer, it's really fun to have something on hand. And the rhubarb one is very pink, which is also just- good color. Yeah, it's it's great. It's what I want. Um, What's your next one? It's drinks related as well. Uh, I was in Chicago at Foxtrot and I was able to pick up this really great agua fresca called Bowie. Are you familiar with this brand? No. Really cool brand. I, I looked them up. I hit them up on LinkedIn. I was like, this is a cool brand. Uh, I Wait, LinkedIn? Yeah, LinkedIn. Isn't that, I just, yeah, LinkedIn. Not Instagram. No, like LinkedIn is the new blank. I, I really think LinkedIn is cool. Oh, gotta get Emily Sundberg on this. <laughs> I know, right? No, I think I, I, it's funny. LinkedIn is a weird, like, it's like basically Facebook from 2012 because people actually read articles that you post into your feed and you have like followers and shit. And write like long comments with personal opinions. Definitely not. I'm not that. 
No. Guy. You're not like, oh, this reminds me of when I was in the second grade. Great the reference. teacher changed my life. Oh, my gosh. Such trolling of LinkedIn is, is appreciated here. Um, so, yeah, the Bowie guys, I guess, are based in Austin. Um, so what I like about it, it's really tart. It's really tart. It's just like so the what I want with um, – a, a, you know, a refreshing drink. They have three flavors, pineapple, lime, and passion fruit. And I just think it's a brand. I like the branding. If I saw it at like our, you know, store downstairs that has like 800 different drinks, I would be picking Bowie. Wow, that's high praise. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. Yeah, it's good stuff. What's your last one? My last one is also something you could get at a bougie grocery store. It's these ice cream sandwiches called Nightingale is the brand. Yes, I've heard of this brand. Uh, yeah, they're based in Richmond, Virginia, but they are all over the bodegas where I live in Brooklyn. And they're like a hefty sandwich. The cookies are thick and yeah. crumbly. And one of my friends turned me on to them and also said, I slice them into pieces and eat them, yep. which at first I thought was just fussy. But actually, if you try to bite into it, I've had difficulty because the ice cream and the sandwiches are so thick. But if you're slicing it, you can just have little bites. Little bites and that can actually works fine. So good. I had a miso churro flavor. Oh, my God. I know. Say less. It's like the perfect flavor. For completely. Those two things together, please. Um, it reminds me of like Cool House when they launched their ice cream sandwiches a little bit, the thickness. Right. It is a lot like Cool House, except for it is rectangular. Um, oh, yeah. Instead of, instead of circular. And also, I think that the ice cream is fattier even. Like, it's very luxurious. It's a rich, rich, uh, rich bite. It's a rich bite. Um, but now I can't stop buying them. So Look in the freezer section near you. You may also find yourself just looking for Nightingale ice cream. I've definitely been on an ice cream journey the past few weeks, and I have to give you a couple updates. Because oh, we're on the please. topic. This yeah. is like a little like a little diversion. So I tried the Van Leeuwen vegan uh, chocolate bars that I believe are pretty new. They're, they've been out the last six months. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Wow. Like absolutely amazing. Like texture-wise, melt point, it, it's like – comes out of the freezer 30 seconds later it's like starting to soften in a good way and then you're like two minutes in and it's like perfect texture and consistency i love it it's really good do you know what the the alt milk is yeah it's a good question i don't um and then i went to try to buy it again i couldn't find it so <laughs> i think it might be oat milk because that's what they do often with the vegan ones i think but... it's oat milk I, i'm pretty sure that's right and and but i didn't get too much of the oatiness from you it got the chocolate yeah i got the chocolate it was it was really rich. Um, I texted Ben because now I know him because he was on the show. And he he I just was like, this is good. And he was like, yo, like, this is our hardest thing to make, which is cool. So I hope to have him back talk about that. Um, you know, they've been doing these little Debbie flavor ice creams. Have you seen this? No. Yeah. So they have um, Astro Crunch. No, Astro. This like, you know, what I'm talking about the Astro Cakes. No, that's like a, I like the name already. They have like Nutter Butter as well. Oh, oh my God, I want this. So the one I had, I think was Astro. I'm like totally blanking on it, but it was not great ice cream, but really cool to see this crossover of like Little Debbie snack cake and ice cream. Yeah, it seems like a, a good combo. And then my third journey, thank you for letting me talk about this because I wasn't about to go crazy for Van Leeuwen, but I actually tried the Arizona iced tea, green tea and um, and honeycomb flavor. That's like they're limited right now. Where are you getting all of these like niche ice cream drops? I feel like I'm living in the past. Can I tell you a little secret? Yeah. Walmart. Oh. Have I gone? I've gone to my Walmart thing. 
Not before. to me. Oh, well, off mic maybe, but you We've do. About you live. Show. You live in a place where there is Walmart. There is a so. Walmart where I live. Um, as an aside, oh, I talked about it with um with Snackshot. Yeah. With Andrea, Walmart's great. Walmart for for baby brands and for finding limited stuff. Walmart is fantastic. Yeah, you know, I had a Reese's Klondike bar from a Walmart um, the last time I was at one, which was amazing, obviously. But they only sold them in six packs, and I just wanted one. That is my. What beef. are you talking about? What do you mean they sold? They sell Lucy you need ice cream six sandwiches. Six of them, though. Why would you ever want one? Well, I was leaving. I was in Atlanta. I was leaving, and I just wanted a oh, snack for the night. And I was just like, wow, I can't buy just one ice cream. So to contextualize this Walmart drop for those who maybe didn't hear that Andrea interview it's like Walmart is not like the best store in the world um and I love shopping at my local places which is what I've always done but for to my understanding for like baby brands to get into Walmart is really exciting Mm. and they are willing to take more chances than say a Target definitely Whole Foods so it's kind of like counterintuitive because you think Walmart is being big and you know, unwieldy, but it's actually, if you go there and and walk the aisles, you can find lots of cool specialty food, lots of meat alternatives, lots of um, gluten-free, et cetera, et cetera. I believe it because you know about all these secret ice cream collabs that <laughs> I, meanwhile, I'm excited to talk about one ice cream bar. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to, to hijack that. No, yeah. I love it. I feel yeah. like my eyes have been opened. Okay. Do you have a third thing that's not ice cream? I do. And it's back in the beverage category. I am reminded again, how much I love this hop seltzer moment. And I know we've talked about in the past. My latest hop seltzer of choice is Langanitas. Langanitas Hoppy Refresher. Like the beer? Yeah, the beer company Langanitas does an N.A. Hoppy Refresher is what they call it. Uh huh. It's I, really good. Your Midwestern pronunciation of Lagunitas is amazing. I also. know. <laughs> I, I totally butchered Langanitas. Langanitas. Yeah, Langanitas. Langanitas, yeah. They do a hop seltzer. That's so funny you called me out on my Midwestern accent. I'm sorry. I was like, what are you talking about? What is this thing? (laughs) Langanitas. Lagunitas. Lagunitas. Hoppy refresher. (laughs) Check it out. The reason I like it, and I've talked about NA in the past, but I think it's going to be the summer of NA. Definitely going to happen for sure. NA beer. Get your athletic. Try it. Drink responsibly. Um... It's just a great way to refresh the palate. Say you are have finished a long meal and you want to go into dessert or if you wanted to start the meal and, like, you've had some things all day and you want to, like, start the meal, great to have this, like, refreshed palate with your langanitas. Yeah. Do you know about how it's made? I'm interested in the sustainability element if these breweries are already using hops in some way, if maybe it's, like, another product they can add in. Yeah. That's you're saying that that's something that is happening. Well, I don't know. I'm asking if you know. But. I've not heard about that, and it makes sense that uh, it would be a way to use hops that aren't being thrown into the beer, but using it in a new way. I think it's just like a beer company wants a new category to make money. Yeah, and like so, there's like maybe a sustainable like sustainability model. Yeah, I don't know if they would use spent hops. I have no idea no how idea. hop tea is used. But I, love, I like the concept. Yeah, maybe we should write something. We should just like actually go and answer that question through taste. Yeah, maybe. I do know a company that's making energy bars in the Bay Area using spent grain from breweries. Oh, that's so cool. there is value in the hops after they've been used to make beer, whether or not um, yeah. it's in the hop tea, who could say? Very cool. Thanks for sharing your three things, Eliza. Anytime. Anytime. 
This Is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 